come up with us. Thank you. And uh, what did that verse say about chilly winds not blowing anymore? That must be a future time. Well, we did spend a few days in Florida. Someone remarked about that up here. I, I attended a class with the Moody Graduate School, which uh, was held at their Keswick Conference Grounds in St. Petersburg, Florida. And uh, I just want you to know that it was so delightful to hear it was snowing here. You know, it makes the trip all that sweeter when back home they have cold, snowy weather and you're in Florida or someplace like that. But I'm glad it melted in time for us to get back too. It was a good week. Thank you for praying for us, those of you who did that. And uh, we returned to the Cincinnati area on Friday. I say we, that's my wife and myself, returned to the Cincinnati area on Friday afternoon in order to spend a few days with her family. And while we were there, enjoyed the Tall Stacks Festival. I don't know if you've seen anything about that in the network news or not, but this is uh, the year when the paddle wheelers of America, the steam-powered paddle wheelers, riverboats, con congregate at Cincinnati. They do this every four years. And I tell you, down on the riverfront yesterday on the Ohio River, it was absolutely spectacular. In St. Paul, Minneapolis, we're well, well represented by three boats. Uh, the Jonathan Paddleford. What were the others? What is the, the Josiah Snelling? And then there was another one that I had not heard of before that was there from our area too. And so they'll be back in a couple of weeks. Somebody asked if I wanted to get back home on one of those ships. And I said, if I just had two weeks, I would love to do that. That'd be quite a trip, wouldn't it? I think they had come the furthest of any of the 17 vessels that were there at the riverfront. Well, how many of you have in your hands a copy of the notes for tonight? Would you wave them at me? My, you look like a bunch of Pentecostals. <laughs> All right, good. I'm glad you've got them. If you need one, there's probably a stack by the door there, and Usher can get one for you. We are continuing our study tonight in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. This is the second part, and we have a third part that will address another section of the seven letters to the churches of Asia Minor. Let's just remind ourselves where we are in our study. Can you see that okay? If not, you're too far back and need to come forward. In this rather simple outline, we have the chapter numbers here along this line, and uh, you can almost get all of that on, I think. <clears throat> and tonight we're dealing with the messages here in chapters 2 and 3. Christ is in the midst of the church, in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And you can see where we're headed as we continue our study, but right now we're talking about the things which are. You may recall in the last verse, uh, or the next to the last verse of chapter 1, John is told to write about the things that he was seeing, <clears throat> had seen, that is the vision of the Lord Jesus. He does that in chapter 1. The things which are, chapters 2 and 3 address that, the things which are in the letters to the seven churches. And then the things which shall be after the things which are. And that section begins with chapter 4, as you see here in this outline, and goes through the rest of the book. Those are the more prophetic chapters 
of Revelation as we look at the book. Now we'll just zero in for a moment on these first chapters. Again, we have the vision here of Christ in glory, and then chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches. Christ is in the midst, and the church is on the earth during this time. There are reasons to believe that as the Scriptures unfold in Revelation, the church is removed from the earth and is taken up into heaven. But very clearly, the church is present on earth as we come to chapters 2 and 3 of the book. Now, I think you have on, the, on one side of the page the grid that we've been working with as we have studied these letters to the seven churches. We talked about the description of Christ that is found in each of the letters. We saw that that description, and about half of them, goes back to the first chapter as Jesus appeared to John. And there are other phrases describing, or Jesus uses really to describe Himself, which are drawn from the Old Testament. But He is addressing each of these seven churches as the Lord of the church. He has something important to say. Because of His awareness of the characteristics of the churches, Jesus addresses them with specific words focused on their peculiar circumstances. And each letter, after telling about Himself in these verses that are up here already on the screen, Jesus goes on to say to them, I know your works. Now, why is that? Because He's in the midst of the lampstands. He's observing them. He knows how the candle is burning, that candle of testimony, as it were. And so He says, I know your works. Now, while on the one hand that may seem a little threatening to us, on the other hand it can be quite an encouragement to know that our Lord sees everything and knows everything regarding our service for Him. Jesus knows what we're doing. And you may be in some Sunday school class and you feel like nobody really pays attention to me. Now, Emily does pay attention to you. You may not realize it as fully as you ought, but she does pay attention to you. You may feel like, well, I'm an usher. Nobody notices me. We all do, and especially when you're gone. You may feel like, well, I, I witness to people, but that's just such a small thing. Listen. There's nothing that we do that goes unnoticed by our Lord. And one day He will reward us for all that we're doing. That's a great encouragement to me, and I hope it is to you as well. Some of the issues or identities in these uh, letters that we're going to look at tonight are difficult to understand. We don't have the historical or archaeological data to interpret them without some questions remaining. So if you're hoping that in our brief look at these letters we're going to answer all of your questions about them, uh, you need to dispel that notion right now. In fact, if we preached a message on each of the seven letters, took seven weeks to do it, which I chose not to do in our study this time, uh, we would still have questions remaining because there are some of these phrases and ideas that are still mysterious to Bible scholars as to what was really meant. Now, had we been living in Ephesus or in Pergamum 
or one of the other cities and we read the letter, we would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about and there would have been no questions. But we're 2,000 years later and not everything about those churches is known. And the content of the letter serves several purposes. First, to address the seven congregations of that day. That's obvious. There were seven churches. Jesus is talking to seven literal congregations in the seven cities of Asia Minor that are named here. There are Bible scholars who also understand these letters <clears throat> to include a broad and general progression of the church age. In other words, as they look at what Jesus said to that church in Ephesus, they say, you know, that letter seems to describe generally what the church was like in the first century. When the apostles were gone and up until that time when the persecution became so severe in the Roman Empire, that sounds like what the church in general was like in that day. And there are others who look at the church of Pergamum and they say, well, boy, that sounds like the church uh, in the first two or three hundred years uh, after the apostolic period and after the first century. And so as they look at the, the general characteristics of the seven churches, there are some scholars who see that it rather outlines the progression of how the church developed and uh, degenerated, frankly, in some of the periods of church history in the last 2,000 years. And if you approach the seven letters that way, then we today would be living in the Laodicean period, which is not to say, I trust, that all of the, the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ are like the church at Laodicea. But Christendom, in certain aspects, can be described as a lukewarm church like that. Now, I'm not going to develop it that way, but some of you are familiar with that. If you're interested in, in uh, finding out more how that falls out, let me know, and I'll suggest a couple of books to you. We want to spend more time, though, talking about the characteristics of the seven churches as they apply to all believers in all ages. Each church today has some people somewhat like those in the seven churches. In other words, in Grace Church Roseville, Broadly speaking, we would have Christians who would represent these seven different churches, would be like these seven churches. And so that's the way primarily we're going to look at it. First, let's look at the church at Ephesus. <clears throat> you will notice an outline on the other side of the page than you may be looking at. We have written down a key word left blank on your copy to describe each of these churches. Uh, the words that I've chosen, you might choose other words or even better words, but these are the words that I would use to describe generally the seven churches. Ephesus, the busy church, the busy church. Notice the commendation that Jesus gives as we turn to the second chapter. We're not going to take time to read all of the verses here, but I want you to notice he begins by saying, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil that you've tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars and you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. And then together with verse 6, 
But this you have, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And so if you outline this, you have something like seven commendations of Jesus to the church at Ephesus, the busy church. He says, I know your works. This means good works, good deeds that they had done. I know your labor. This takes the idea of work to the extremity of exhaustion. It means to toil until you're ready to drop. These people were busy, hard-working Christians. He says, I know your patience. That is your steadfastness. Uh, they are the kind of people who would not quit. They just kept pushing ahead. He commends them for their opposition to evil. They were alert to corruption in the church, and they exposed it. He commends them for their spiritual discernment. They knew the truth, and in light of that, they examined their teachers. You could say that this was an orthodox church. They were militant defenders of the faith. Again, Jesus commends them for their labor without growing weary, and he says, seventh, that they hated the Nicolaitans. Now, literally, that word means to conquer the people or the rule of the people. And this is one of those, those uh, concepts that's hard to really pin down in these seven letters. What were the Nicolaitans? Was this a movement in the church in that first century to separate the clergy from the laity so that the clergy sort of ruled over the laity, which developed into a priesthood? Well, it's really hard to know. Some people say, no, it means that the people were seeking to rule. It's the rule of the people. It was the church seeking to be a democracy. And so, as I say, it's hard to really understand what the Nicolaitans were, but this does seem clear. The people who were following this idea were people who believed in loose, sensual living. Whatever their doctrinal position was, their moral position was a bad one. They believed in living loosely and immorally and sensually. And Jesus commends the church because they hated the Nicolaitans. We would have to say after looking at this that the church at Ephesus is one of the best churches in the world. There are not many churches that could come up to the level of what Jesus commends this church for in these verses. But there is a word of condemnation as found in chapter 2, verse 4. The condemnation is that the church in its busyness had left its first love. It had left its first love. It was not as intense. It was not as exciting as that first love for Jesus which they had exhibited early on in their history when Paul had been there some 40 years before this and had lived among them for three years and when Timothy was their pastor. They had lost something from those days. Still a good church in so many ways. But Jesus says, you've left your first love. Now, we may just gloss over that a bit, but just suppose that your spouse came home one day to you and said, I don't love you anymore. I'm going to continue providing food. I'm going to continue living with you. I'm going to continue doing the things I need to do around the house. But just know this, I don't love you like I used to. How would you feel about that? Would that make you feel good about your marriage? Of course not. You would be stunned. You'd be heartbroken. 
And that's the way the Lord Jesus felt. Here were people going through the things that needed to be done, and they were working hard at it, but they had lost their love for Him. And so he corrects them in verse 5. Basically, he says, remember, call to your mind what our love was like before and repent. That means change your mind and direction and return to the first works. What does he mean by that? He means go back to those works that were motivated by your love, the intensity of your love, and recapture that. Let there be a genuineness and a vigor in your love. Or else, he says, I'll remove your lampstand. Now, what does he mean? Well, he means he's going to remove, ultimately, the church. You say, wait, you mean Jesus would actually put a church out of existence? That's right. Listen, sometimes when churches close their doors and sell their property, it's not the devil that's done it. It's Jesus Christ. Because that church has refused to repent and return to Him and love Him first. And history records this is exactly what happened eventually to Ephesus. The city was destroyed about 200 years, 150 years later after this letter was received. The Goths came in and destroyed the city. It never did recover. It's marble from its fabulous uh, temple of Diana and its other pagan temples was all queried by the Turks and the Italians in med medieval times. The beautiful river on which it was located in its day filled in with silt and became a malarial swamp. You know, it, it makes us stop and ask the question, what is going to happen to the great cities of America if the church of Jesus Christ abandons them. We need to remember that God has us here in the St. Paul area to represent Him. And our being here is not only important to Him, it is important to this city. And it is important, I mean, each of the local churches of our area is important. Several years ago, I preached at an anniversary of my home church in Kansas, and one of the things that I told them that day was that the city, that town in Kansas where it's been located at that time, I think it was 45 years or so, that that town should give thanks to God because for those four decades and more, that town had been blessed by a gospel preaching ministry. It hadn't always been the church it should have been, hadn't always been as effective as it might have been, but the gospel had always been preached there. You think what would happen to the Twin Cities if every gospel preaching church just closed its door and left and was no more. I want to tell you something. In a matter of weeks, this city would know a difference in its moral climate. It would know a great difference. Well, the church at Ephesus, the busy church, we need to be careful of being busy for Jesus and not having a fervent and intense love for Him that motivates that. You say, well, I, I've lost it, Pastor. What do I do? Just what Jesus said. Remember, like it was one time, and repent and return. Get back to that point of, of loving Him with 
genuineness and intensity in your heart. Smyrna. Number two, Smyrna, the suffering church. The suffering church. The commendation is found in verse 9 where Jesus says that he knew the works of this church. He knew the tribulation that they were passing through. This word tribulation means grinding pressure. Here was that city where Caesar was named as God first. It was a city that prided itself in emperor worship and the heavy hand of Rome was on this church because of its loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, I know your poverty, however they were truly rich, but in earthly things they were in utter destitution. They had very, very little. Jesus speaks about the blasphemy of the false Jews that were in that city. There apparently was a large Jewish population there that fanned the flames of antagonism toward the Christians. Now, why would they do that? Well, probably several reasons, but among them, it took the pressure off of them, the pressure of persecution. They were able to focus it on this new sect, which they too despised, and therefore they were relieved but Christians suffered, the suffering church. You'll notice there is no condemnation from the Lord Jesus to this church. There is no correction to this church. But there is a command, and it is this, do not fear, Jesus says, verse 10. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Now, is that just a figure of speech? Is Jesus just saying, well, there's going to be some bad things happen to you. We sort of call it the devil around heaven. <laughs> no, of course not. Jesus is saying there is a literal devil. There is an evil personage, a fallen angel by the name of Satan. And the book of Revelation, by the way, deals at length with him. And persecution comes from his hand. Now, the devil works within those boundaries that the Lord allows. The Lord is sovereign over Satan. But Jesus says the devil is going to bring suffering. Some of them are going to be thrown into prison that you may be tested, he says, and have tribulation 10 days. Hard to know just what 10 days means here, but we know this from what Jesus says. It's an, a limited time. Suffering is not forever. Suffering is for a while. That should be an encouragement to them. And Jesus says, be faithful unto death. Do you remember Polycarp, the man that I quoted a few weeks ago? He was one of the leaders of this church in Smyrna. He was burned at the stake, or they attempted to burn him, and uh, the flames were blowing the other way, and so one of the soldiers pierced him with a sword, and he died. His body was burned, but he would not renounce his faith in the Lord Jesus. The suffering church... Be faithful, he says, unto death. Folks, I don't know what the future holds any more than you do. I'm not a prophet. But as things look, there is persecution coming to faithful Christians in our nation. I don't know if it's next year or five years from now or ten years from now or when it's going to be. I'd rather think it may be sooner than later. 
But there is suffering coming. And not just for the church in our nation, although it may strike us the hardest because uh, we're not used to that. But I believe that suffering is coming to the true church worldwide. Uh, we look right now at what's happening in places where the church has suffered, like Eastern Europe and Russia. And we give thanks to God for the open door that is there, and we are amazed that literally it is true there is more freedom in Russia today to preach the gospel than there is in the United States of America. That is absolutely true. They are begging for Bibles in their schools. They want the Bible taught in their schools, not because they're eager necessarily for evangelism, but they want some kind of a moral base, and they know they'll get it from the Bible. But on the other hand, we read statements like I did today in the airplane coming back in which Edward Shevardnadze warns that there is a dark cloud hanging over Russia and that Yeltsin's time is quickly running out and the forces of darkness, that's his term, he says, are gathering strength. Who's he talking about, the reporter asked. He's talking about people who are the extreme communists and worse, who are plotting to take the country back. Will they succeed? Only God knows. But it could be that suffering will return to those people, too, after this brief and happy interlude when the gospel can be preached. My point is that the church of Jesus Christ worldwide may become the church at Smyrna, the suffering church. And we, I believe, will be among those. And we need to listen to what Jesus says to the church, be faithful. Know that when suffering comes, it comes under God's hand. It comes for His purpose. It comes from the devil. But Jesus is in charge. It will be a limited time. It can only last as long as His lifetime. That's for sure, right? Beyond that, it's glory. And we need to be ready if we become the Smyrna, the church of Smyrna. Let's look at the church of Pergamum. I would call this the compromising church. Jesus has a word of commendation, and my goodness, this sounds good. Look at verse 13. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Interesting phrase. This is the place that up on top of a hill there in the city, they had a huge altar that some archaeologists say was in the shape of a throne. And that altar was dedicated to Zeus, who was the chief god of the Roman and Greek pantheon, the head honcho of their, their pagan gods. That may be what this phrase refers to, the throne of Satan. Because listen, idolatry and Satan and demons are always connected. You write it down. They're always connected. And Jesus says, I know where you dwell. It's where Satan's throne is. You hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which... Antipas was my faithful martyr. And so one of their people had been killed. We know nothing about Antipas except what Jesus says about him here. And can you imagine a commendation greater than this? My faithful martyr. Who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And so there is a tremendous commendation. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on now to give a very strong condemnation to this congregation of people. And he says that there are some of them who've embraced the doctrine of Balaam, 
You remember Balaam was that false prophet who was hired by Balak, the king of Moab, to curse Israel. Remember that back in the book of Numbers? He could not bring a curse upon Israel. God would not let him speak it. But in the end, he suggested in place of a curse a compromise, a moral compromise for the people of Israel, and uh, it worked. Here, he refers to those who are following that kind of teaching. And so I'm calling this Pergamum the compromising church. Because here's a church that compromised with the world and with its values. There was social compromise and moral compromise in the church. Now, I want to say that compromise can be a good thing. In Acts chapter 15, we see the leadership in the church at Jerusalem and Barnabas and Saul and others gathered and there was compromise. It was important compromise and it pleased God. In fact, people who never compromise on anything are divisive and they're miserable to live with. <laughs> on my trip last Sunday evening from the leg from Cincinnati to uh, Tampa, I was sovereignly placed beside a husband and wife who disagreed on everything. There was so little compromise in that marriage. I said, Lord, can you get us there in a hurry? Whatever she said, he disagreed with it. Whatever he said, she had another point of view. <laughs> we were served a wonderful meal and had coconut cake for dessert. And when it was done, she made some comment about the coconut cake. He said, that wasn't coconut cake. She said, of course it was coconut cake. He said, there, that wasn't, there was no coconut on my cake. She looked over on his plate, which was still there, and there was coconut all the way around the area where the dessert was. She said, there's coconut right there. And she said, I've got it sticking in my teeth. I mean, they couldn't get along on anything. When you're married, you learn that compromise can come in pretty handy sometimes. There's a, there's a place for compromise, but not when it comes to essential things. You don't compromise the faithfulness of your marriage. You don't compromise. That's essential. And so it is spiritually. There are times when compromise is good, but not when it comes to essential doctrine that we cannot compromise. Not when it comes to clean moral living. We dare not compromise that. And here some held the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Again, that was a group that seemed to profess Jesus Christ on the one hand and live immorally on the other hand. It was inconsistent and a compromise that Jesus Christ condemns. And there is a word of correction in verse 16. Jesus says, you repent or I'm going to discipline you. He says, I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Here's a church that Jesus Christ is going to war against. How would you like to be in that war? God forbid and deliver us from that kind of a war. Now, number four, the church at Thyatira.
I'm calling Thyatira the idolatrous church. If Pergamum compromised, Thyatira just took it all in. Here we have the idolatrous church, and that is the reason that some identify this with the church of the dark ages that brought in the idols and uh, its false doctrine that went with the idols and which is still with us today in certain forms. The church at Thyatira, the commendation in verse 19. Jesus again knows their works, your love, your service, faith, and patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Here seems to be a church that is deeply involved in doing social good. Here's a church that knew and understood the needs of the city in which it was living, and it was trying to meet those needs, but there is awful condemnation. Down to verses 20 to 23. They tolerated what Jesus calls the evil of Jezebel. Now, who in the world is Jezebel? Well, you know who Jezebel was in the Old Testament, that uh, queen that Ahab married. And she brought with her into that marriage uh, all of her idolatry. And it only further reinforced the wickedness of that bad king of Israel or Samaria. She was the one who fought against uh, Elijah, the prophet, you recall, Jezebel. Well, here Jezebel seems to refer to a wicked false teacher, or maybe it's a pseudonym for that teacher. But this teacher was seducing believers into doctrinal and moral error. Here is idolatry with its demonism and moral perversion. And by the way, where you find idolatry, you will find moral perversion. Now, why is that? Because of the works of darkness and demons. It's all a part of the same, same uh, stew. This Jezebel claimed to be a prophetess and apparently claimed to have special revelation from God in addition to the Scriptures. Anything, by the way, that's in addition to Scripture and is claimed to be as authority is a lie. And it always results in error. It always results in error. And Jesus gives a word of correction, verses 26 to 29. The false believers in this church, in this congregation, will face judgment. But Jesus says, I said 26 to 29, didn't I? I meant 24 to 25. Somehow my computer messed up here, or the person who programmed it maybe. 24 and 25, the false teachers will face judgment. What does he say? To you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine and who have not known the depths of Satan, as I call them, as they call them, I will put you on, on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And so there was a remnant in this church that was told to hold fast until Jesus would come. An idol. What is an idol? We may pride ourselves that we don't have idols in our church. But remember, an idol is anything that takes the place of God. Traditions can become idols in churches like ours. Traditions can become idols. They're more important than God in some churches. New ideas, church growth. I mean, you can go down the list of lots of different ideas and movements that come along. And if we put those in the place of God, I'm not saying all these things are wrong, but if we put them in the place of God, 
then it becomes idolatry. And we are like the church at Thyatira, the idolatrous church. Did I give you that word? The idolatrous church. Now let's move ahead to the church at Sardis, which I'm calling the sleeping church. There is no commendation at all to this church, unless you look at verse 4 and decide that that might be. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy, says Jesus. But to the church as a whole, there really is no commendation. There is condemnation. Jesus says, the last part of, of uh, verse 1, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Here was a church that had a reputation for something, but there was no reality to it. Isn't that tragic when that happens? Oh, and that can happen in a church. A church can become proud of its past and seek to live in its glory days. And it has this reputation that everyone looks to and they say, oh my, what a church. When you get close to it like Jesus was doing, it's a dead church in the inside. There's no reality there. By the way, that can happen to Christians too, can't it? He says, you have a name that you're alive, but the truth is you're dead. Your works have not been brought to completion. And so he gives them words of correction in verses 2 through 4. He says, be watchful, strengthen what yet remains, shake off your complacency, remember, hold fast, he says, repent, or else, here we have another or else, he says, I'll come as a thief. What does he mean? Unexpectedly. And I'll bring judgment. He's not coming here in his return. He's saying, I'm going to come unexpectedly and I'm going to bring judgment to you, not salvation. This isn't the rapture. This was a city that was well known for its wealth, Sardis. They boasted themselves in wealth. And you may recall that I said that it was a church that was built with cliffs around it going up over a thousand feet. It was a complacent lethargic city. Only twice in their history had they ever been overrun. And they felt in the day that John was writing the letter to the church in that city that they were still secure. And because of their advantage up there in the cliffs and because of their wealth, they thought, you know, life is wonderful. Everything is beautiful in its own way, you know. They were sitting on top of the world. And here's a church that has gone to sleep in the midst of that city. They took on somehow the characteristics of their culture around them. And Jesus corrects them with strong words. He says, hold fast or else. The church at Philadelphia. A wonderful church. I call this the missionary church. <clears throat> if Sardis was the sleeping church, here's the church that is alive to its opportunities. The commendation is long. As verses 8, 9, and 10, Christ knows their works. He says that He's given to them an open door, which means an open door of opportunity. 
Despite their little strength, he says, they've kept his word and they did not deny his name. The idea seems to be that the church in the city of Philadelphia was a small church in number. They had little influence in the world. And yet Jesus commends them for using everything they had. It's like the old statement says, God plus one is majority, right? So here you have a little band of believers, apparently, who were really on fire. Here's a group of people that didn't have a lot. They weren't like the church at Sardis, but they really were aware of what God wanted them to be about. And Jesus commends them because He had set before them an open door, and He gives them a promise. He says, they're enemies, by the way, a church if it's going to do something for Jesus Christ, is going to have its enemies. You can count on it. The church at Philadelphia did. Jesus says one day their enemies would come to acknowledge their error and would also acknowledge Christ's love for the church. And Jesus gives a wonderful promise in verse 10, because you've kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. He uses a technical term there at the end. Literally, he says in that last phrase, to test the earth dwellers. I'm going to talk about that on some other evening. But here is a term in Revelation that is referring to unregenerate, unsafe people. Uh, it is a term describing those whose whole life is wrapped up in the world, the earth dwellers. Now, because of what Jesus says here and the way He says it, there are a lot of Bible teachers, and I'm among them, who would say that this verse not only refers to the historic church of Philadelphia, but it refers to the church in our day that's faithful to Christ. And it's a wonderful promise to believers that they will be kept, that we will be kept from the hour of tribulation that is coming upon the earth dwellers. In other words, that seven-year period of God's wrath that we poured out upon the earth. I believe that it is another verse that underscores that teaching that says the church will be taken out of the world before that time of tribulation of God's wrath is poured out uh, upon the earth dwellers. Now, Jesus has no condemnation to this church, but there is a command. He says, hold fast, verse 11, I come quickly Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. Suggestion is that we can lose our reward. Jesus says, don't lose it. Hold fast. I'm coming quickly. Good words. We want to be faithful to the doors of opportunity that Jesus Christ has given us. And though enemies may arise from time to time, know that the Lord is in charge. And He's with us. And He says to us, hang in there. Don't let anyone steal the crown, the reward that you may have for your faithful service. And then finally, the church at Laodicea. This is undoubtedly the wealthiest church of all of them. And I would call this the apostate church. The apostate church. There is no word of commendation at all to the church at Laodicea. Jesus speaks condemnation to them that is strong, it is powerful. He says, I know your works. <clears throat> he says, you're lukewarm. 
and their lukewarmness nauseated Christ. You may recall that this city had no decent water to drink. This is the city that I told you about that arranged for water to be brought in from springs about six miles away. And the viaduct, the viaduct, the aqueduct that brought the water, uh, parts of it are still present today. And uh, some have, have said that the water apparently was not even good from the springs because there's limestone deposit left by that uh, water that used to run in that aqueduct. But you see, that water would start out cold at the spring, and by the time it flowed through that aqueduct all those six miles under that hot sun, it became just tepid water. That's the picture Jesus is drawing upon. He says, you nauseate me. Have you ever tasted the water in Florida? Along the west coast? It's sickening. You can't wait to get back to Minnesota and have a decent drink of water. It's terrible. It has all kinds of minerals in it. And uh, you do well to make sure it's cold. If you drink it tepid, I, I think you would get sick. And Jesus says here, you, he's speaking now to people who profess his name, a church. He says, you make me sick. I don't know about you, but those are words that strike me. He says, I know your, your words, your works. You say, I'm rich, you need nothing. He says, you don't recognize that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Let me just tell you something about this city. Laodicea was famous for its wool. There was black wool that was grown in that area and they made clothing from that. It was a city that was famous for its medicines, several kinds of medicines. And one of them involved a pill that they made which had to be crushed and mixed with water, and then that was put on your eyes. It made sort of a paste or a salve-like stuff. And it was very famous in that day, supposed to have healing qualities for the eyes. Now notice Jesus' correction to them. In verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire, that you may be rich. Here's a, the richest church of all of them. Jesus says, you're poor. What you really need is gold from me. He's talking about spiritual righteousness. He's talking about spiritual, uh, being spiritually right with him. He says, buy from me white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. He says, you need garments. They're famous for their garments. See? He says, you buy from me white garments. Speaking of righteousness again, in the book of Revelation at least, as we'll see later. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. They're spiritually blind, and now he says, you need salve for your spiritual eyes. You see how he draws upon that cultural background in the city and addressing them? And he gives a word of command. He says, be zealous. The word means be hot. Be hot. Repent. And then verse 20, that famous verse of invitation of Jesus knocking at the door, wanting to come in. Notice where Jesus is in relation to the church at Laodicea. He's not inside the church, he's outside. That's why I call it the apostate church. There's a church that has the name across the top, but no savior inside. It's just like the modern liberal churches today that have their names across the top, 
and they have their bank accounts and they live off of them and their wealth from years and years in the past, but there is no Savior in them. They have no gospel to preach. They are apostates. They are the church at Laodicea and they nauseate Jesus Christ. Better that they would take his name off of them than to be what they are. So we see that these churches represent churches like we have today in our world. And they represent Christians. And I say this broadly like we have at Grace Church. I don't know about you, which church do you like to identify with here? There are phrases from several of them that are highly uh, words of commendation, high words of praise. But if there's one church that I would like us to really say that that's our model, it would be the church at Philadelphia, wouldn't it? Wouldn't you agree with that? The church that's awake to its opportunities, the missionary church. Did I give you that name, by the way, the missionary church? The church that sees itself as a mission center. The church that understands its mission and why it's there. And God help us to be that kind of church. Jesus tonight is looking at our candlestick. And I would hope that he could say about us some of the things he said about that church. As he looks at my life, as he looks at your life, Jesus would undoubtedly have some words of commendation. Our Lord, even in some of the worst churches, found something to say about them. And he would about you too, and about me too. I would hope that whatever he would have to say by way of condemnation would be few and far between. But if he needs to say it, let him say it so that we can hear his words of correction or command and uh, repent. I don't like the or else, do you? I don't like the or else. I want to walk with the Lord, and I know you do too. Let's stand together as we dismiss in prayer. Well, which of these churches most describes you? Just tell the Lord right now in your own heart of hearts, Lord Jesus, as you look at me, tell me what I need to hear. Write upon my heart the message that you want to share with me and give me a heart that's sensitive, that will hear what you have to say and respond to you. Lord Jesus, do that for all of us tonight and as we go from here. May we this week be like those Philadelphian Christians. Open for us, Lord, doors of opportunity. And if you close doors, help us not to fret about that, but to go on and to remember your promises to those who are faithful. I thank you for this faithful congregation and for these people who are here tonight. And I pray your blessing and the fullness of the Holy Spirit in their lives, in their homes, in their each individual situation this week. In Jesus' name, amen.